Hey everybody, welcome to episode 78 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan, my name is Brandon. On this episode, I am joined by Stuart Herwood, who was the guitar tech and right-hand man for Lou Reed in the last decade or so of his life, which means he was there every step of the way for the Metallica-Lou Reed collaboration that of course culminated with the Lulu album. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, Brandon, a few episodes ago, you were joined by music journalist extraordinaire Mr. Richard S. E. and did a two and a half hour episode about Lulu. And yes, we did. And we did as good of a job breaking down that album track by track that we possibly could. But at the end of the day, there is one thing that we can never provide you, and that is a firsthand experience of the making of that record because neither of us were there but Stuart Herwood was there and he was there every step of the way like I said from the initial meeting between Lou Reed and Metallica to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concerts to being at Metallica HQ recording the album to the promotional efforts that followed the release of the record literally every step of the way and this episode is jam-packed with fantastic story after fantastic story that even if you're not a fan of Lou Reed, even if you're not a fan of the Lulu album, if you are a Metallica fan, you will get so much out of this episode. I guarantee you that. And Stuart is not afraid to kind of push back on some of the haters. He pushes back on the people who hate on the drumming of Lars Ulrich. He pushes back on the people who still to this day give James Hetfield a hard time about I am the table that is right he addresses that lyric and he sets the record straight once and for all plus just so many great stories from inside the studio to outside the studio this is a must listen so without further ado here's my conversation with Stuart Herwood about the making of Lulu My guest today was the guitar tech and right-hand man for Lou Reed during the last part of his career. He was there for the making of Lulu at Metallica HQ, and he's here on this show to talk about his experience and provide his unique first-hand perspective of the process. Please welcome to Metallicast, Stuart Herwood. Stuart, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for inviting me, Brandon. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, this is awesome. I was, uh, you know, I did a two and a half hour episode about Lulu with uh, a music journalist, Richard S. Hughes, been a frequent guest on the show. And to sort of 
help prepare for that episode, I, I dove headfirst into uh, Lou Reed Facebook groups and kind of went back a little bit in his discography because I always considered myself a pretty casual Lou Reed person myself. And then somebody introduced me to you through one of the Facebook groups. And uh, I was like, yes, I need to speak to Stuart, uh, especially since you have such a unique perspective to put on the making of uh, what I would consider a, a fairly controversial record in uh, the career of Metallica. And I think to maybe a lesser extent, but also a bit in the career of Lou Reed. Um, so I'm really interested in jumping into it. I, I'm really fascinated by the whole process and what your role in all of it was, but let's start at the beginning, um, sort of how, you know, what was your intro to music as a fan and what kind of led you down the road to being a guitar tech and musician and ultimately working with Lou Reed? Well, that's a whole story on its own i think it's probably better if i just tell you that i took the gig with lou reed basically because um it was a three-week tour he was he was going to japan where i'd never been at the time in iceland so i took the tour and i thought it'd look good on my resume to have lou reed on there I just, i'd come off of a duran duran tour before that and i was working around new york city and then the, uh, i got put forward by three different people for the lou reed gig and i took it and it was great i had a great time but when we came back to new york you know, the production manager's like, oh, we got this, we got that. And I'm like, what do you mean, we? You know, I'm done. I'm on, I'm going to be moving on to other bands now, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and then the phone, my phone rang about 20 minutes later, and it's Lou Reed. And he was like, <laughs> why won't you work with me? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, Lou, first of all, I took a cut in pay to work with you. That's the first thing. And there's certain things in the camp that, that don't jive with me. So, you know, anyway, long story short, we... I obviously ended up working with him for the last 10 years of his life. So it was a very interesting relationship. I wasn't a Lou Reed fan. I wasn't a Velvet Underground fan. And I told Lou that probably three years before he died. We were sitting together in the office. And I was like, you know, Lou, I was never a Lou Reed fan. And I really didn't get the Velvet Underground. He looked at me like, <laughs> what the fuck? You know, and I'm like, well, I'm honest. But I said, I do now. I am now. I'm a total Lou Reed fan. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm into the Velvets. Because I said, I, you know, I've gone back. I get your genius. I've worked with you for so long. that I, I know who you are. I know... I get it. I didn't get it when I was too young. I, d I don't know. I just, just, yeah, when we're young, we dismiss things very quick. I don't sure. know if you're the same way, but, you know, I made very swift judgments about bands and music when I was young. And only yeah. for years later to hear something and go, oh, what is that? And it would be a band that I dismissed, you know. Oh, yeah. um, so that's kind of like my intro with Lou Reed. And it's a very, it's an amazing gig working with Lou because it's so varied. You could be working with anyone from Metallica to Pavarotti or... Patty Smith or Iggy Pop or anyone, you know, I mean, Lou right. was just this guy that, you know, not only was he rock and roll, he's, you know, he's a poet. So, you know, if you're on tour, often you get invited to galleries and libraries and, you know, sort of events that, you know, not typical rock and roll, but sort of cultured events, which is really cool. So that's my thing with Lou Reed. Now, the thing with, um, if you want me to jump straight in with Lulu. Well, I did. I, I, I had a... I had a couple uh, follow-up questions. What what type of music were you into? Were you were you a rock guy, jazz guy, sort of everything Mate. but Lou Reed guy? <laughs> okay, no, okay, this is my story. And I got to meet, after Lou's death, I got to meet Tony Visconti, who basically, my introduction into wanting to be, I, I listened to T-Rex and Mark Bolan. I wanted yeah. to be Mark Bolan when I was nine years old. That's why I picked up a guitar, you know, 
I was playing folk guitar, like trying to have lessons at school and learn to skip to Maloo and all that sort of rubbish. Sure. And then T-Rex, Rider White Swan came on and that was it. I wanted to do that. I wanted to be Mark Boland. So um, years later, after Lou's death, I get to meet Tony Visconti, who obviously discovered Mark Boland and is an amazing producer and worked with David Bowie. And we know the, the link there with David Bowie, Lou Reed, you know, Mick right. Ronson, all these, you know, these are people, I, I love glam rock, I grew up in the 70s in England, man, it's like David Bowie, T, well, T-Rex first and foremost, I want to be Mark Bowie, and then I got into Bowie later, obviously it's Slade, Mud, all of these glam rock bands um, back in the day, so that was my introduction, um, but my other, I also had other music interests and stuff, but like I said, I wasn't really... I mean, I like the Lou Reed hits, you know, I like Walking yeah. the Wild, so I don't like, you yeah, know, yeah. Perfect Day and all these things. But, you know, I wasn't a particularly a fan of Lou's, um, and I didn't really know that much about him, except that he was meant to be very difficult to work with, which was not, you know, he was very difficult to work with. He was very exacting. He, he knew, actually didn't know what he wanted. Often he was searching, like he's a true artist, he's searching so hard for things that he could be, get very, very frustrated. So I think a lot of people interpreted that as him being awkward and nasty. And he could be really nasty, actually, to be honest. But um, as Metallica would verify. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, that's my gig. It's like uh, basically um, glam rock, then up through, obviously, the 80s, and 90s hair band, well hair bands in the 80s into like Nirvana and all the other Soundgarden and stuff through the 90s along I always like pop music as well and well and country and western and jazz you know if it's old country sure, and western like yeah. Johnny Cash and stuff like that you know so very varied sort of musical um background I would say but primarily a rock I want to be a rock guitarist um actually I'm six months older than Kirk and we share a lot of similar interests. Yeah, you know, when I'm when we were working and stuff, we, yeah. we chat because he's into like Michael Schenker and Gary Moore and all the all the people I grew. Right. You know, you're a guitar player that you grew up. You like Schenker, you like Gary Moore, you like obviously Van Halen and you know blah blah blah. So we had all yeah you know, we had a lot of similar you know awesome, commonality man. in the music when we were chatting. Um, so the Lulu thing. Where do we begin? Because the Metallica part is the end part of it. You know, there's a long, right, yeah. long story before Metallica even get involved. But the, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my introduction to Metallica. Um, yeah, with Lou please Reed. do. They were rehearsing up at SIR on 37th Street, and it's a huge place. There was no sound conditioning on the walls. It was echo, really terribly echoey and, and awful. Metallica were on ears. And they also had wedges and they were running the back line really loud because they're on ears. They couldn't hear all the phase cancellation and the delays mm -hmm. and the echoey, reverby, horrible noise that's actually, um, you know, rolling around in that hole. Right. So I went in a day early, as, as usual. I always go in a day early, set things up, introduce myself, get the lay of the land. So. What typically happens in a professional situation is that you go out as a tech and you're working and someone gives you a heads up, hey, the band are coming in in 10 minutes. So you basically get, get out of the way, you know. Um, no one gave me the heads up. So I was down on, on my knees fiddling with a pedal board and, you know, just doing, you know, going through my, my checks. And then I look up and James is there, James Hetfield. And, he's, and I like, I feel very awkward, you know. It's like, oh, the band are in and no one's told me. Anyway. I sort of get up and he's really lovely. He just reached out his hand and said, hi, I'm James. I'm like, hi, I'm Stuart. How are you doing? I'm loose guitar tech. He's like, man, take as long as you need. It's all good. We're in no rush. 
Metallica were really lovely to me, to be honest. They were really nice. Anyway, I quickly got my stuff done, got out of the way, and they proceeded, and, you know, I backed out of the way, and they proceeded to start rehearsing, and they went, they were doing the Lou songs, and it was quite funny. They got to doing Sweet Jane, and at the time, they were doing it very much like Boston, more than a feeling. You know, Bo- uh, Boston, oh, yeah. more than a feeling? yeah, down, down, yeah. Down, down, down. They were doing all that, you know, type thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, yeah, I went off. I was working on some amps actually upstairs, and I, I got the call that I always get when I'm working with bands, be it the 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 Strokes or the you know Gorillas or Killers or whatever. It's like you know, oh, the band would like to meet you, and they always ask the same <laughs> question: What's Lou? What's Lou like? You know, because he's Lou Reed. I right, mean, he's yeah. you know, it comes with some gravity. You know, sure. So. I'm standing in front of Metallica, and they say, what's Lou like? I'm like, okay. And I put out my arm, my left arm, and I said, you're Metallica, you're over here. And I could put my other arm out, and I stretch it as far as I can, you know, and I say, that's Lou Reed, he's over there. You two are like poles apart. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, you guys are all very specific, you know, palm mute in your round 3K frequencies. It's all very punctuate and very sharp and aggressive. Da, 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 da. You know, this is what you do. Lose, like this loose 70s fuzz type sound that sort of swishes around a bit. The time in ebbs and flows, you know, uh, lose time in ebbs and flows. And so Lars, <laughs> Lars says, what do you mean? He won't come in on three, will he? I said, oh, no, no, not three. He'll come on three and a little bit. <laughs> and he does look like horrified. I'm like, dude, don't worry about it. He'll come on seven on sometimes. But, and he's getting more and more horrified. I said, look, all you do with Lou Reed, watch him. You'll feel when he's going to do the changes. You'll feel it. You'll know how to do it. That's how everyone who works with Lou, they watch and they feel. It's like working with old blues guitar, you know, blues players. You have to yeah. just feel that stuff. You look, you look at body language and you feel it and you'll be fine. And, uh, and that, that, I don't believe I had the balls to say this, but I said, and also when you're playing Sweet Jane, I said, you're playing it like Boston. I said, it's not, you know, it's, it's three calls, but it's, a, it's dunk, 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 dunk. It's a skip beat, you know? Anyway, so <laughs> it was a bit of an awkward sort of like meeting me with a band, you know, I definitely felt it was not confrontational, but definitely, and they're Metallica. I mean, let's face it, you know, they're Metallica. They're, mm-hmm. they're, there's a vibe there, you know. In fact, right. Kirk actually said that to me, you know, because I said, you know, you guys are playing ri- ridiculously loud. I said, Lou won't use in ears. <laughs> um he wants his guitar from his amp. He doesn't want it through the wedges. I said, so, we, you know, like, this is already a, a tricky situation. You know, um, I said, you're on ears and you've got ISO cabs. So maybe we can, like, work this out. You know, I could have easily taken loose Soldano 4x12s and put a stack up. But I knew getting into a pissing match with Metallica was not the way forward, you know, because mm-hmm. clearly it would have just been an onslaught of craziness, you know. Right. Um, and we had a really good thing going with our tone king amps and the pedals we were using anyway so the kirk says to me well dude we're metallica and i'm like yeah i know you're on these lou reed and if you want this all to work we're gonna all have to try and like you know we're gonna have to work together and, and figure it out anyway so it's a little bit pensive and i then i had to i was speaking to lou's manager and i said i mean i don't know what how to handle this i said because it's a terrible situation Lou's going to walk into. Metallica are really loud. They're in a room that's really full of echo, and it's that the you know, and that 
the delay coming off the wall is giving phase cancellation and tuning issues. And I knew it's his worst case scenario. He hated that. I've seen him absolutely unload on us. Many, not many times, but any time when we were in a situation, usually just rehearsing and it was echoey. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it was like hell. So I knew he was going to walk into a situation. He, he would probably explode and we probably wouldn't get the result. This is for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is before Lulu. Right. Um, so... And I'm like, but if I tell him he's going to be up all night worrying and he's going to come in and be in a really pissy mood and it's going to be a nightmare. Anyway, during the conversation, I said, you know what, I've got to just tell him. I've just got to let him know, give him a heads up. Or he's going to be so pissed off at me that it'll be, you know, be terrible. Anyway, so I called him up. I told him the situation. I said, look, it's horrible. Um, I said, but they've got iso cabs and they've got ears and you know they they can work with us and i think we can make it work it'll be okay it's not ideal but i think we can be okay he said what's iso cabs i said that's a four by twelve that's in a box isolated and they got the mics on so they can run the amps as loud as they want without you actually hearing them oh okay anyway the next day, I was obviously in early, I had the guitars tuned and everything, and I was waiting, you know, I was sitting actually behind Metallica Stacks alongside Lars, which is where I actually was on the night of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I was just sort of sitting there waiting for Lou to come in, and, and it was obviously, I didn't get a heads up. Um, Lou had called me and said he'd be in about 15, 20 minutes, but I didn't know when he actually came in the room, apart from the fact the vibe completely <laughs> changed. <laughs> like it started, I guess, with like assistance and management out, right. and it gradually crept up to the, through the technicians, I guess people got whispered in their ear, and Metallica suddenly like were a little bit more subdued and a bit quieter. <laughs> anyway, so Lou, Lou shows up, and uh, he's like, okay, so... She, Basically, show us what you got. So that Metallica steam into Sweet Jane doing it like Boston. And they sort of like get through it and lose like, and this is brilliant. I love this because I'd said the day before, Lou was not a big guy. James Hetfield is quite a big guy. So mm-hmm. Lou's looking up at James and he's got Robert next to him and Kirk next to him. So there's three guys that all, I mean, Kirk's the smallest out of the three, but he's still bigger than Lou. Yeah. And Lou looks up at James and goes, this is this is probably the easiest song ever in the world. It's three chords, four if you want to get you know fancy. But he said the key is it's got a skip. He goes junk. Ju- it's all about the skip. Exactly what I said. <laughs> so I stood behind Lou like a Cheshire cat, smiling like told you so, t- without saying anything. Anyway, so they they did it. They adjusted and and then they got through Sweet Jane and James started doing the backing vocals and stuff and it was good you know they you know you could tell everyone's feeling like okay yeah that's reasonable so it's like what else have you got oh we might like white heat so Lou says okay I'm just going to listen to you. And immediately, he'd taken the guitar off. There, there'd been some talking between. He said, I'm not going to play guitar for this one. And immediately gave me the look like, give me the guitar. So I put the guitar on him. And he did play along. They did White Light White Heat, but they did it like Metallica. They really like, yeah. you know, it was great. I mean, it's White Light White Heat, but played by Metallica. You know, really like super energetic, super pushed, really like kicking ass, to be honest. Lou, and I didn't know if it could have gone either way. I thought Lou could either say they've destroyed my song and it could have been pissy, or he didn't. He was like, that was fucking awesome. (laughs) We should do an album together. Everybody, including me, our jaws hit the floor. You could hear the sound of shattering jaws across the whole hall. We're like, 
what? You know, because it's gone from, you've got to imagine <laughs> yeah. um, this tension in the room and like Lou, you know, I mean, he's, he, seriously, this guy's got gravity. I've seen him take the whole energy out of a whole, out of the Scottish Philharmonic Orchestra to be specific. <laughs> you know, this guy could, he's very, he's seriously full of some energy and you want it to be positive because if it goes negative, it's going to be terrible. So we should make an album together. Well, what? <laughs> okay, so... That's the start of it. We go and do the Rock and Roll Hall wow. of Fame um, at Madison Square Garden. And you can see it online. It's great. You know, I put the guitar on Lee. And, and, you know, you can see he just, he loves being there. He loves the fans, you know, calling out. He's with Metallica. This newfound energy. You know, he's got this new machinery to work with. This right. powerful yeah. thing called Metallica. And so... You know, they, they play the songs, and apparently I wasn't there because I was obviously picking up pedal boards and moving things at the end of the show, or at the end of Lou's part of the show. And um, apparently, as they were walking down the corridors to the dressing rooms at the end, Lou shouted back at them, we should make a fucking album together, I'm serious. Like, really, <laughs> sh like he was really serious. <laughs> wow. Anyway, um, I don't know how long it was, but sometime later I heard that their Metallica's management called up Lou. Lou's management and said, you know, hey, you know, Lou, if you want to make an album, we'll be your backing band. We'll work free of charge and you can come to HQ here in San Francisco, mm -hmm. our recording facility, and work wow. for free. Lou Reed's response, can't they come to New York? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's Amazing. brilliant. Anyway, so we, we go out to, you know, sometime later we go out to san francisco now i'd always said to everybody like my friends have a text i'm like it'll be 10 minutes there'll be a big argument and that'll be the end of it and it nearly happened <laughs> that way anyway so we we went out to san francisco and i packed up ridiculous amounts of amplifiers all sorts of effect pedals i had mood guitars i had I had his uh, rig for Metal Machine Trio, which has got a continuum keyboard. It's got three pedal boards on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was armed to the teeth because I knew from um, Mike Rafke, Lou's previous guitar player and musical director, that Lou would always change amps and do this and do that and, you know, be ready, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had everything in the kitchen sink now. I took everything to San Francisco. And we set up in the room and... I forget the first track they started working over. Actually, I should t really preface this for when we actually got in the control room, because this is quite important. Um, actually, is, I, I need to even start before that. Everyone thought that Metallica and Lou Reed, like, clearly the management of both bands, thought that they were going to do, like, White Light Heat, White Light White Heat, all of the um, Velvet stuff, but with right. Metallica. And I guess yeah. everyone's seeing dollar signs and, yo, this would be great. This would, yeah, you yeah. know, this is a no-brainer. You know, Velvet Underground and Metallica. It's, it's, you know, everyone except Lou Reed was thinking <laughs> that. We'd, we'd actually been working on the Lulu thing, which was a play, went out and was a play in Germany. And mm. that was already, that already caused so much trouble. And it, uh, that's a whole saga all of its own. Anyway, that had happened, and then I was in the office with Tom Sarig was Lou's manager at the time, and he said, so, Lou, you know, we're going to San Francisco in a, a week or two weeks, whenever it was. What songs do you want to do? And Lou just said, I want to do the Lulu album. <laughs> and Tom Sarig, like, at my, everyone, once again, our jaw, we're like, what? Wow. What? 
Lulu. I mean, this is an art piece. It's like a a play yeah. from like a, you know. I don't know if you know the story, but it's like it's a it's a very involved thing, you know. Anyway, Lulu's like just send them the stuff. They'll either get it or they won't. So we'd sent off the tapes, you know. Even Saf Calhoun, who's like you know, Lou's basically Saf and Lou jammed for about three quarters of an hour in the studio we recorded everything and then that became the loop we chopped that up it became songs it was a whole thing i need to actually you know do a whole series on this i'll write a book or something because it's quite impressive how it all came to be a thing um anyway so we sent metallica the, the songs and whatnot all of them even Saf said what even little dog yeah send them fucking everything they'll either get it or they won't that's that's the attitude wow. so we arrive in San Francisco, and we, you know, meet the guys, and they're all really lovely. And it's like, hey, Lou, you know, and they're really, they're really keen. They're amped up. Hey, Lou, we've been working on some riffs and stuff. Come in the control room, listen. Well, they put on Junior Dad first of all. Now, Junior Dad was a drone song before Metallica got hold. It didn't have a drum beat, and it didn't have the rhythm guitar. So Lou was sitting there, and obviously the drum beat comes in. That's new. Wow. And thought about a drum beat, and it's a weird. It's got that double hit on the end, you know, yeah. the measure. Um, and the guitar, it's got that love. You know, James came up with a lovely rhythm guitar thing in there. So I knew I could see from Lou's reaction, like he went, "Oh my god!" He would always point to his arm. The hairs on his arm were standing up, and that, that I was waiting. I knew the next thing was cut. as he listened, and the song went on because Junior Dad is a very emotional song. As it went on, I saw tears boil up in his eyes. I'm like, he's going to start. He's going to lose it. <laughs> anyway, he, he had a little bit here, but he's like, wow, that's amazing. That's great. He was really impressed straight out the gate. And the boys also had some riffs, you know, some really great metal riffs for other things. And, you know, they were keen. It was like, and it was exciting. So we did get in the room, and I forget the first song that we actually did, but... Um, it was a good vibe, and everyone was doing it, and it's like, okay, let's go for one then. And we started playing... And it was fine. We got through it, but something sounded a bit off, and no one could pin what it pin down what it was. But it turned out James' guitar. He was tuned. A, he was playing a fifth apart from the rest of the band. So immediately um, realizing this, he decides to retune the guitar on the spot, and you know. It's return and it's like it's a high pressure situation. You're in a studio. Anyway, it, it got all out of hand. He he lost the tuning and he didn't lost his way. And he put the guitar down. He looked frustrated. I get you know. James is. I think James is quite intimidating. He's a lovely guy. I, I like him a lot. But looking at him, you could be very easily intimidated sure. by him. Yeah. And I'd only just met him, and he looked pretty pissed off. He put the guitar down, he walked off, you know, it's very spinal tap, like, the guitar goes down, <laughs> he's gone off, he's in a half. Yeah. So I thought, we're all sitting there, and clearly it's awkward for Metallica as well, because Lou's like, what's happening, is he coming back? And Lars is like, starts laughing, he goes, I don't know, I don't know what's happening, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> anyway, what happened was, James was really smart, he went into the control room, he picked up the acoustic which he'd been working on, and he figured out, what he needed to do, he came back in. You know, I, I was convinced this is it. That's the end of it, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. I, as I called it, 10 minutes and we're, and we're out. But he came back and he asked Chad, his guitar tech, to tune the Can you put the guitar back in such and such a tune? And yeah, sure. He tuned the guitar up for him, gave it to James, and we went again. It was all good. So that was like, oh, we got yeah. over that. Now, um, Metallica, this is great. When we did Iced Honey... 
the, the, they were all like doing riffs. Now, what you've got to picture is Metallica, Lars is in the corner looking out, and all the guys are set up in a semicircle looking in at him. That's how they work, so they can communicate. It's a smart way to work. So Lou was next to James, Kirk was on the end, and Robert was on the other side of James, and we're all looking, and Saf was between Kirk and Lou. Saf Calhoun was doing, like, sound effects and keyboards and different bits and pieces. So that was the setup. Um, Metallica were just going over some of their riffs. They were just going through and doing some various riffs that they were thinking about putting in, either Ice Honey or The View. Everything was very loose, but then it was like, okay, let's go for one on Ice Honey. Lou, Lou had been... While they were doing all that, he was in his own little world, screwing around with his fuzz boxes and his little continuum keyboard and just getting, you know, I guess getting himself composed. And anyway, at some point, he's like, OK, let's go for one. And he's like, two, three, four. And you could see Metallica, like Lars and everyone's like, what? We're not ready. You know, we don't even know what we're doing. <laughs> and he's like, two, three, four. He counts it in and they just go for it. And they're Metallica looking at each other like hawks. They're really, really like. No one knows what's going on, mm -hmm. but they go through it. Now, I couldn't hear Lou's vocal because I didn't have cans on. I was just in the room. So I'm just hearing Metallica play these riffs through the song, you know, and, and you know, get through the song. And it gets to the end of, of the song. And Hal Wilner, the producer, says to me, what do you think? I'm like, they didn't do all the riffs they were practicing. There were other riffs. And he looked at me like, you're insane. Are you insane? Are you insane? Did you not just hear that? Anyway... They went off to the control room to listen to what they'd just done. I, I should preface that by saying, immediately stopped, Lars was like, we didn't know what we were doing, we've got to do it. And Lou, Lou said, that's the take. And they're like, what? None of us knew what we were doing. Look, that's the take. Let's go in the control room and listen. Now, I put Lou's cans on when they were in the control room, and I listened back. And what I didn't realise, Lou had done a, a one-take beautiful Lou Reed vocal. You know, it, it, it just... The thing you hear on the record, that's one take. That's the first thing oh, they did. Yeah. He just, like, knocked it out, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. I guess that's why Hal thought that I was insane because <laughs> I didn't hear Lou's part, his contribution. Anyway, like I said, Metallica was... They were fighting Lou. They, they wanted to do it again. They, he's like, no, it's done. That's it. So they had a... <laughs> it was a lovely experience for Metallica because... Yeah. Um, James told me this. I was I was in the room with James between when he was singing the view actually, and I've got to actually put that to you know the table thing. I've got to put that into perspective for everyone. Yes. Um, so I was in the room with James, and I said to him, "You know what? You seem to be really enjoying this." This was some time later. You seem to be really enjoying this. You know, he said, "Dude, it's great. I come in here. I don't have to sing. I can play guitar. I don't have to think about anything." You know, I just say, what do you want? And Lou says, play guitar. What do you want? Faster slope. Whatever you feel. He said, I never get this freedom. He said, when we make a Metallica album, he said, before we even do anything, he said, we get the songs, we put them in Pro Tools, we chop them all up. He said, we have two weeks of just listening to guitars and amplifiers, deciding what we're going to use on the songs. He said, then we start laying it down. Then we probably chop it all up again. Then we double track, triple track. He said, I do vocals. I do lead vocals. I do triple, you know, triple the lead vocal. I do all these backing vocals. They're yeah. all triple. Vo he said, it's, it's a real chore making a, a metallogram. It's By the end of it, you, you hate it. You just, <laughs> it's like, it's a real hard process, mate. He said, this is great. Lou just like, Let's me go. Um, and I was actually, James really, I saw him really blossom with the whole thing. It was beautiful to watch him just like realize, hey, you know what? There are alternatives. You don't have to, there's not one way to, you know, to make an album. Yeah. You know, you can do many different things. And clearly Lou's way out there with his ideas on, on what, 
you know, how he works, you know. So it was lovely. Now, I'm going to tell you about the story about the table because I know James has taken so much shit about that. And I feel very sorry for him because clearly, oh, oh, yeah, James thinks it's a coffee table. Well, no, not really, guys. If you actually took the time to realise what Lulu is and my, you know, what I was kind of picked up on listening between the guys was that, you know, it's written about a girl, obviously, in a time period when it wasn't seen cool for young women to be flirtatious and, like, outgoing. And and she's obviously, like, a beautiful young girl who's vibrant and up for a good time. And she obviously breaks the hearts of lots of men who fall in love with her, but they want to own her. They want to marry her. And she despite you know, this is why she actively despises them. She, yeah. she wants to see them dead and in a coffin, their souls shaking. The more they love her, the more she hates them. But in the end, she falls in love with one guy who happens to be Jack the Ripper, pumping blood, you know. Mm-hmm. Are we really dead yet? Like this, it's a, it's a kind of heavy idea. Anyway, the view. So let me tell you about that. Um, We'd laid down some of the view. I think the tracks were basically laid, and I think Lou had done his part. And James had said, "Do you want? Could I do the chorus, or do you want me to do the chorus, the table thing?" And like Lou's like, "Yeah, sure, that's great." So James came into the studio to record his vocal, and he, you know, he did his. I am the table. I am this. I am the ten stories. I'm like, yeah. You know, James always does the yeah. yeah. The <laughs> button goes on at the end, and Lou goes, "Lose the yes." And James is laughing. He goes. I'm famous for my years. I'm fa- and he goes, lose the years, like lose Adam and lose the years. <laughs> so James does it again, but he's still lighthearted and it's still he's still just James. He's just thinking about it. Button goes on. Lou's coming in. Lou's coming in there. I'm like, oh no, this is not good. You know, <laughs> if he's coming in, he's going to have something to say, and clearly he did. James, what Lou? I'm the table. Period. I am the 10 stories, period. I am the aggressor, period. I am all this. I am this. I am. You're the voice of God and you're fucking pissed off. Get it? And Lou just, Lou's angry and he walks off. James immediately went into character, dude. And he just like, they rolled the thing and he just went in. I am the table. And he scared the shit out of me. Um, And when it came to the end, like he finished, he looked, he sort of like was just standing waiting. I said, dude, that's it. That's a take. James was like, what do you mean? I'm like, dude, look at me. I said, my hair, everything on my body is standing up. You scared the shit out of me. That was a performance there. And that is a performance that you hear on on The View. Um, so here's another great thing. You know, people all said to me, or lots of people said to me, you should watch the Metallica doc- documentary. It's like, I don't want to know about Metallica. And not only that, as a, <laughs> I found being a professional guitar tech, for this long it's better off if you don't have a preconceived idea of anybody because when you walk in you'll soon learn by how they treat you who they really are not what someone else has told you otherwise you might not act naturally with them or you know so i didn't want to know about metallica i didn't you know I, i thought that it would be detrimental to the job so I didn't watch anything. I didn't know anything. I'd obviously heard people say, oh, watch out for Lars. Watch out for Lars. Well, you know what? Lars is awesome. Lars is a great mate. And if I saw him now, he'd hug me and I'd hug him and we'd have a real laugh. He's a great guy. I'm sure he can be a handful. I saw bits of that. As can Lou, as can James. I'm sure all of them. As can all yeah, of us at some sure. times, you know? So anyway, The View... There was one point when they were laying the tracks down and I was putting strings on Lou's guitar at the back of the studio and Lars called out to me and he goes, Stuart, 
give me a number between one and four. I'm like, I didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, I don't know, three. Give me another number between... I'm like, what's he... Three again, I don't know, two, or whatever. <laughs> anyway, he does this three or four times. I'm like, what, where's he going? This? And then he turns to the band and goes, as per Stuart, that first riff we do three times, that second riff we're going to do twice, or whatever I called out. I mean, he literally <laughs> said, the third, and he did a... And then Metall they proceeded to record it. Wow. And at the end of that, I looked up, I said, Lars, and he went, dude, at that moment, you were the captain of the ship. You were running Metallica. <laughs> and I was like, wow. <laughs> so, awesome. you know, um, and I had a great relationship, particularly with Lars, Lars's dad. I don't know, oh, for yeah. some reason, he just loved me, just took to me. Every time I saw him, he gave me a great hug and a big smile. And he was like, he was such a lovely guy. And I, I said, Lars, I love your dad. He's, he's really awesome. He's a really great guy. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't find any of that Metallica. I, I don't even still haven't seen the film. I don't care about it. I'm not right, interested. Yeah. Robert, I was a huge fan of Roberts from Suicidal Tendencies and Osric and all the things that his history, the bands he'd played with. I was like, that dude is really great. Yeah. And I had a great, Robert came over one time after uh, the, one of the sessions and he was looking at loose pedals. They're all Pete Cornish pedals. Pete Cornish builds boards for um dave gilmore paul mccartney you know lou mm. reed people like that his pedals are, are handmade and they're lovely and lou loves pete cornish yeah you know always said pete gave me my tone he, there's a pedal there called De the death pedal it's an ng2 fuzz and it's got three germanium diodes in it it's like fuzz squared anyway that's just one of many pedals we had so robert came over and he's interested in the pedals and uh, I said to him, well, when we get done, I'll bring the pedal board over to your base. Like, it's only across, like, it's only 20 feet. I said, I'll bring it over and we'll have a, you know, you can have a go on your base. So the session got finished and I, I said to Robert, okay, mate. Because Robert was actually staying at HQ. He was sleeping there. Whereas the other guys, they've got houses. They would go, that's a funny thing, they would record around the, the kids' schedule, you know, the school. Right, yeah. They would take the kids to school in the morning, then come in and record, and then leave in the afternoon, which caused a lot of trouble at first because no one told Lou that was going to happen. I think he thought we were going to record all night. Anyway, I digress. But so, so we get to the end of the session, and, and I said to Robert, you up for it? And he's like, yeah. I said, okay, so I'll bring the pedals over. And he goes off and gets the Lemmy Rickenbacker bass. Yeah. You know, he's got a Rick and, right, you know, yeah. the Lemmy model. He goes, dude, we've got to do it with this. I'm like, absolutely. So he gives me the bass at first to show him the pedals. Now, Robert's an amazing musician. But anyway, yeah. it's like, so he wants to fiddle around with pedals while I play. So I do that. I might do, after a while, I might do, you do this, I'll do that. That's what I do, and this is what you do. Yeah. So we had to, like, write right old fuzz out that night we played all the pedals <laughs> and everything else i i know for a fact that he got he contacted pete Cornish and got some of the pedals i think they already That's had awesome. some anyway yeah i got pretty much in any everything there when you go to hq it's like a, if you're a, a gearhead it's like heaven because they've got so many guitars they've got all these amplifiers it's like it's just great you know i mean yeah. if you're into all of that which clearly i am sure um, yeah so that was great um I've lost my thread now. What was I talking about? See, you got to keep an eye on me. I'll just wander <laughs> off, man. Well, you were saying how, you know, welcoming, I guess, working with Metallica was and sort of ignoring the preconceived notions that some people kind of were telling you about it. Then that led to kind of to, uh, you were familiar with Robert Trujillo, you know, from his previous work and then just staying over and him checking out the base and having that opportunity to kind of nerd out a bit. 
Yeah, um, well, basically, like, HQ headquarters, it's like, yes, they've got the recording facility there, but they've got other, they've got their merchandise in there, but they've got a kitchen there, big, big kitchen yeah. with a huge table. And, like, you know, they're like, dude, you know, help yourself to anything. So I'd get, I'd, the interns would come and pick me up from the hotel, drive me in, which was great because they were young and they knew the area really well. So they took me some really scenic routes. Some, it, it was lovely. I'd get in early and I'd cook an omelette up with the drum tech. <laughs> in the drum tech would be cooking like salmon and omelettes and stuff, you know, yeah. lots of onion omelettes and stuff before anything happened. Get our coffee on the go or tea or whatever. And then go and start our day. It was lovely. And it's so relaxed. And then we ate meals together at the table. So, yeah. you know, it wasn't like, it was just like being with a family, you know, like Metallica. Yeah. It became very family-like. And at the end of the recording sessions for the day, like I said, because Metallica were finished by three, because the kids, you know, had to pick the kids up. Um, we, Lou Reed, Hal Wilner and Lou's Camp, um, Bree, the personal assistant, and, and we'd all go and staff we'd all go out and watch movies. Hmm. Like, it's like Lou would be like, hey, do you want to come out and watch movies and go to dinner? So I did. So we'd, we were watching lots of, like, really great movies and cool. having great dinner. So it was a great experience. I mean, musically, it was amazing, but also life experience, you know. Yeah. Quite funny, near the end of it, because basically what happened, we went out there and did we did a week. The idea was to do a week's worth of pre-production, but we laid most of the tracks within that week. Most of it was done, you know, basic tracks were in place yeah we worked really fast and i think it shook everyone including lou who's used to working fast but you know we cracked on and got most of it done and then we went out for a second a second time i think there was a gap of i don't know three or four weeks i can't really remember we'd be doing so much work at that time it was all a bit of a blur and then we went back and and did another two weeks so towards the end of that second two weeks we were out, I was out, we'd been watching the movies, and I'd, it was great, I used to discuss these films with Lou and Howe and different things, and Lou suddenly had this idea that we're in very expensive restaurants, San Francisco is expensive like New York, and Lou oh, Reed yeah. never eats in a cheap plate, well I'm not saying he doesn't, but generally speaking he's going to go to really good restaurants, and if you go, it's going to be a lot of money, mm -hmm. so and he, I guess he realised I'm not a millionaire like he is. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point he says he turns to me and goes oh he said are you okay with this and how Wilner doesn't miss a bit he goes the pds ran out ages ago <laughs> so it's great i didn't have to say anything i just said lou mate who gets who brings a guitar tech out to san francisco to record a a groundbreaking album lou reed with metallica i mean this is mm -hmm. ridiculous you brought me out for three weeks I'm not paying for my hotel. I didn't pay for the flight. Yeah, I've spent the PDs, but what is life? I'm at, I'm discussing art films with yeah. you two, and I'm recording with Metallica in the daytime. I yeah. said, yo, who, who gives a shit about money when this is going on? Sure, yeah. And uh, honestly, that's exactly... I, I didn't care at that's that awesome. point. I didn't care about... I, I, my life is absolutely fabulous at the time. Not to say that I wasn't you know, under a lot of pressure. I was, but I love, I love the process of creating art. I love... I don't mind artists being really on on that. You know, when they've got a mission, when they're trying, when they're looking for something, and they're really you know stretching beyond themselves. I don't mind that. I get it. I understand. It's very tough. It's very frustrating. I try and facilitate. Basically, that that equates to like put guitars and toys in front of people to keep them amused. You know, keep them right. working. Yeah. With Lou, if you could keep him, you know interested in something that's great if he stopped and started thinking about things too much then it would 
very quickly. None of that happened, actually, on the Lulu album. None of that happened. We moved at a great pace. It was a great thing. Um, there was a lot of tension. I mean, oh, Lou and Lars at times, you know, so really, you know. But I Lars heard a story about Lou challenging Lars to a fight at one point. I think Lars might have said it in an interview. Very likely. There's one, <laughs> there's one thing that, I, that Lars came in and told us about an answer phone message that I can't even repeat. But I know what went on there. But I was in the office when Lou was on a call with Lars and clearly was very, very angry. I mean, he was seething and he was spewing stuff down the phone. And then he slammed the phone and he said, fucking Lars is such a micromanager. And I'm like, <laughs> coming from Lou Reed, that's pretty rich. But I didn't know this. I didn't know that they were actually neighbours. Lars and Lou were neighbours. Oh, wow. And Lars had the apartment across the hall from Lou. And I only know this because I saw Lou, uh, Lars's babysitter. I met one day I was coming out of Lou's and she was coming out of Lars. And I had no idea. And I'm like, oh, wow. Because I'd met her in San Francisco. I'm like, what are you doing here? And she's like, well, Lars lives here. I'm like, well, Lou lives there. <laughs> and we're like, oh, wow, they're neighbours. <laughs> we didn't know. We, who knew? That well, they so obviously funny. knew because yeah. they'd run into each other. Um, so I'm going to need you to ask me questions because otherwise I'll just talk on and on about all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> no, well, that, well, I mean, that was fantastic. So I was just sort of wanted to let you go and uh, hear what you had to say. But to back up, I guess, to a few things, um, you know, you talked a little bit about – uh, you know, Lou coming in with the songs from the Lulu play, uh, and you gave the example of Junior Dad, it being more of like a drone and the original version, Metallica adding, you know, the rhythm part, the drum beat to it. I'm curious, like, how uh, was that the case for pretty much all the songs in the album Metallica kind of composed the music to, or were there songs that were kind of in, uh, in place still from in its original form from the Lulu play that Metallica just sort of uh, performed on? No, because the, the, the stuff came from a very ambient vibe, very... Yeah. Um, it wasn't... Uh, what can I say? I don't want to say it wasn't music. It wasn't, like, set out as songs per se, you know? Um, it started from a, a, a very jam... Um, ambient jam type thing um, actually what happened was they jammed for about three quarters of an hour and Lou got up and said to Saf okay sort that out and like Saf Eric Kramer the engineer who recorded it all and myself sort of all looked at each other like what does he mean anyway so I said I think what we have to do is listen through and when we feel a piece sounds like something or it's reminiscent of something let's give it a working title and then when it changes let's put a mark on there and give that next piece a different title and try and just chop it all up which is what we did i said the first bit sounds like church bell or something so let's call that church bell and we went through and we did this mm -hmm. now they came back in over the course of I don't know, probably a couple of weeks, and started writing songs on top of that. But sometimes they'd write song on, you know, different songs all over the same pieces. It was such a mess in the end, and this is where I totally saw what Hal Wilner did because I, I worked on lots of Hal Wilner gigs prior to that, and it just seemed like he put a load of people in a room, or put like Lou Reed with whoever, some, you know, insert name here, any other artist, gave them some sort of interest in musical material and they would, like, perform and record it. But it didn't seem, I mean, 
I didn't know where his production skills really were. I didn't really see it. It just seemed like very chaotic yeah. the way it worked. But what I did see was like Hal came in and sat with Eric and they went through hours and hours and actually edited all of that session, all those various songs. They actually made it into what became Lulu that went to Germany. Now that's pre-Metallica. So it's still not the same as, um, and we had, there was a, amazing German musician Ulrich Mass that came and played cello in the studio and he just I mean it was just crazy stuff went on that in that recording it was great but it was really like not set out like Metallica songs or like the Reed songs for that matter so um I think a lot of it they listened to it and thought how could we put riffs over it or how could we come you know what what do we think it needs so a lot of it they had ideas some of it made it and some of it didn't i mean it was a collaboration you know um but very much different for both artists you know Uh, obviously lou didn't know what metallica were going to bring to the table well you the one thing he knew they brought to the table and why he wanted to work with them was the energy he loved the power of metallica when they play um well, you know, you, you, you know, I don't have to tell you, you're obviously a Metallica fan. There's something, they've got something. They've got a real power, a real vibe, a real energy, and and they love that. Now, there's something I really, this is another point I want to make. Um, with with Lars, basically, because he takes a lot of shit for his drumming, all right? And um, I want to set some sort of record straight with that. Every beat, not beat, every hit of a drum or a cymbal that is on that album, last thought about. He didn't wing any of it. He didn't just like play time. Everything he did was thought out, and he really hit with a sense of purpose, and Lou loved that. And I tell you, that you, not many people, you music journalists won't get this, but it's the same thing with Velvet Underground. Mo played to Lou. Lou's vocals ran that. Lou ran the show in that band. It worked from the vocals. Now I'm not saying he ran. You know, obviously John John Cale also is a you know a big mm-hmm. element in that. But I think why Lou loved the Velvet so much is it was song orientated. It wasn't time based and written the way most music's written. Uh, even the tunings, the ostrich tuning, which I use with drones and all that stuff. You know, the tunings. Ostrich tuning is a drifty sort of tuning, which is really interesting. Why it was, it was used in glam rock by the Glitter Band and various other people, um, and the timing was written around the you know like there's odd measures there because the vo- Lou wanted the vocal to come in a certain place, so it came in a certain place. Now that happened as well with Metallica, and I it occurred to me when that was going on. Wow, that's why Lou really likes how Lars is drumming because he's actually listening to what Lou's doing and he's drumming he's making parts up to fit he's not thinking about a drum beat like drums they want to do time there is obviously time there there are times where they're all riffing out and it's great it's actually great some of the songs are so long that all three of them from doing the you know the the palm muting you it's so funny to see and get through the song and all three of them shake their hands (laughs) so hard to play (laughs) <laughs> you know and they're metallica they've been doing palm muting shit for a long time but it yeah. you know and that, that's the other great thing when we actually went to promote the album we went over and did jules holland in the uk the three of them lars james and lou were interviewed by by um what's his name oh god i've forgotten now um 
Unbelievable. Anyway, they're so funny. All three of them are so witty. It's mm-hmm. the funniest thing ever. I mean, I think um, Jules Holland, Jules, I, I should never forget Jules Holland. He's a lovely guy. I met him and talked about Vincent Motorcycleism. He's awesome. He's a great keyboard player. Um, he was in Squeeze mm-hmm. back in the day. So, and he's really, really funny. He's got a very dry sense of humor. So the four of them being in, you know, like, it was hilarious. I think um, someone asked, there was a question came in, someone asked, oh, I think that might have been in Germany, actually, on the interview, where they asked, what is Mistress Dread about? And James didn't miss a beat. He goes, oh, about seven, seven and a half minutes. <laughs> 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 Mate, it's, it was good fun. Uh, I loved the experience, actually, with, with all of the Metallica stuff. It's interesting working, you know, being on the bus with their text. Myself and Matt Brown, the monitor engineer, loose monitor engineer, we were traveling on the bus and the, their texts are like, you could do our jobs, but we couldn't do your jobs. And we're like, what do you mean? We couldn't handle Louis. He's too much. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> anyway, but um, so, yeah, I've gone off again. I've lost my train of thought. So you well, have you, to ask me a question. Well, or... you, talked, you started talking a little bit just now about some of the promotion of the record. I know um, they did do the Jules Holland show, maybe one or two other performances uh what was like the, what was the process of getting prepared for that I'm, I'm sure you were part of the rehearsals and whatnot for that well basically the big thing for me was um at first i had to double lose rig because metallica all big bands stones metallica they have two rigs because they're doing so many big places that one the a rig goes in they come in and play and the b rig is going into the next venue so they can fly and you know and you have to leapfrog that's how it all works well lou we didn't work that way because we're not that big an act you know we would do a lot smaller venues and we didn't need a b rig but it like word came down the line to me oh now you're on board with you know now you're with metallica you got you know <laughs> so no problem i built a, i built a duplicate rig um of you know of the metal machine trio rig which is like three pedal boards worth of gear it's actually it looks like a drum kit you know it's got a you know i built this aluminum frame or aluminium depending on where you are in the world mm-hmm. um that houses three keyboards uh, three pedal bo- guitar effect pedal boards and his continuum keyboard Eric runs mono into one Tone King amplifier, but we in the front end, we've got the keyboard. We could use any of his guitars. We could use the Moog guitar synths. Uh, you know, it's, they call it a synth. It's like, a, it's like an Evo. You've got endless sustain on it. And actually, we used that on the album. And Kurt, actually, there was a point where Lou said, that he, you know, why don't you use this? And uh, Zach Harmon... Uh, the backline tech for Metallica is yeah. a lovely guy. He's like, oh, yeah, we got one. I'll go and get it. Anyway, he was off get, you know, getting his thing. And that's, you know, with Lou, you can't you can't let him wait. It's got to happen now. He gets very impatient. And I could see he was getting antsy. I'm like, I can, I can, I can get Lou's one. Over. And it's literally, it's like, just, I unplugged it, quickly plugged it into his rig, quickly showed him basically how it worked. And he went for it. And he did a, a, some amazing stuff because he set a delay up with no dry signal and it was a reverse delay and he's got sustainiac like i said these things are like sustainiac pickups meaning that like an ebo or whatever they just got mm-hmm. infinite sustain so he was doing this re- and he was letting the 
hitting the bar and stuff and letting things go. Actually, I think he did some of that on his own guitar with the whammy bar, but he did this, some of this on the mood guitar as well, where he had this reverse delay thing going on and the sustainer, and it made a really interesting sound that after a little while, he really sort of got good at it. I'm like, dude, you should use, that's a thing. You should do that. That's really cool. Not that it would be a Metallica thing, but it definitely is in the mix there on the, on the Lulu album. It was very cool. Um, I've gone off again. I forgot what you told me, what you were asking me. <laughs> <laughs> the preparing for uh, the handful of live performances and promotional stuff that they ended up doing for the record. Well, and the, just um, the preparation for that in terms of. Well, like, we'd recorded the album. Everyone was yeah. pretty like up on it. It wasn't like it, I don't remember. Look, we did um, the rehearsals came pretty quick at the end. Actually, we did the video in HQ as well. Right. Yeah. Darren Aronofsky the, came yeah. in to do it, and it's interesting because. Um, Darren had called the office a couple of weeks earlier, and I picked up the phone. I didn't, you know, and, hey, is Lou in? No, he's not. Um, who's this? Can I take your number? I'll get him to call you back, you know. I'll tell him it's Darren Aronofsky. And he's, immediately, when he starts talking, he, t- he starts putting on a British accent because he obviously hears that I'm English, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought no more of it. I didn't, I mean, I didn't put it together, you know. I actually like, you know, his films. So I didn't realise, you know, I, di- I didn't, Oh, so Darren Aronofsky, yeah. I quickly wrote this down, whatever, left a note for Lou. Anyway, we're out there, and then I get the word that we're going to shoot a video for The View, and Darren's coming in. So I get in early with the text, I'm setting up stuff, and there's this guy there just sitting back. I don't know who he is, and, and uh, I'm, I'm putting loose, and he said, oh, that's right, he said, is that loose pedal board? I said, oh, yeah, he goes would you mind putting it over just there, a little bit around that way? And it wasn't like a, a big... I said, yeah, sure. I said, are you Darren? He went, yeah. I went. I stood up and introduced him. So I'm like, Stuart Howard, I'm loose guitar tech. Mate, I love... Um, I'm trying to remember the film with Hugh Jackman in now. Um, it got mixed reviews, but I love that film. Um, the Fountain. The Fountain. Mm-hmm. I said, man, I love The Fountain. I said, Hugh Jackman. I said, you know what? He When he was doing the, the Tai Chi moves, it looked like Master Ren. Master Ren trained Lou Reed. So I'd he, and he'd performed on stage with So I'd seen oh, wow. these moves many yeah. times around the world with Master Ren. And Master Ren tra- trained Hugh Jackman. So immediately we start, you know, we got a, like, a bit of a rapport going. And I get on really like a house on fire with Darren, who's like a total Anglophile. And he, tell, you know, he says, oh, you know, I've got an English passport as well as America. Anyway, it's great. Um, so that was really cool. And then um, we, sh- and I said, oh, you know, because shooting video is usually horrible. Mm-hmm. Any film is horrible. You're sitting around for hours. They keep metering this. They keep doing that. They adjust that. Nothing gets, it takes forever to do anything. So I, you know, I'm chatting with Darren. I said, so I guess we've got a long day then. I get, are you going to be laying track and stuff? Because usually it got track and they got, you know, mm-hmm. the camera rolls. He goes, oh, no. He goes, we're doing it all with handhelds. Everything's done with these cannons, you know, uh, with, you know, S, you know, normal cameras you know like right. cameras but you know they're running on video and he said i'm going to use this he had a super 8 um the old sort of um video he goes no no we're just going to shoot it it'll go really quick i'm like really he goes yep and he was right wow they played through the song i know two or three times they shot from all different angles and then we had to go and do the the the, the weird shots of the heads and all that yeah and how they did that um we went outside and there's double glazing and I said, so what's going on now, Darren? He goes, oh, look, he said, this is just, the, this is just the, the, you know, 
the wank shots. This is just like, you know, people that, that cinematography wank shot, you know. What you do is <laughs> shoot into the double glazing and you get two images and as they move backwards and forwards, you mm. get this whole superimposition type thing. And he said, you wait and see it. It looked really good. Anyway, so we did, you know, I stayed and watched that. We had, I had to catch a plane out. I was going ahead of Lou. Um, so I stayed for right up until virtually the last bits of that when they were shooting these final shots and then I had to leave. Um, but, yeah, you can see it in the video. Um, so, yeah, preparation for the, you know, I still haven't got there. Preparation. So the one thing that happened was we recorded all the album with Lou's Tone King, Meteor Mark II, which is a 40-watt amplifier. It's basically like a, a Fender Deluxe type circuit. Um, when we came to actually like starting to think we're going to play this live, you know, obviously Metallica, 4x12s and stuff, and they, they you know, they got a lot of power. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd actually got Mark Bartel, the guy that builds Tone, or was the designer of Tone King amps, to send out a new amp, which was a... A, a, a meteor, not a meteor, it's a, a Tone King Galaxy, and that's a 60 watt amp, and it's like a Fender Twin Reverb, it's re but it's a really loud 60 watts, really loud. Mm. So I could see, like, when, once we started, Lou had that look of like, oh, I'm not happy. <laughs> so I said, Lou, I've got a new amp that we could just try. Let's just see if this works. Anyway, right. I plugged it in the extra power and the, and the clean, because it's so clean it really cut through, you know, it, it had frequencies that were not the same as the Metallica frequencies. And so we, you know, we were able to cut the mix really well and he immediately loved it. So that was great. And it was loud enough that at some point when we were in Germany playing, because we, we performed in a semicircle, just like we recorded, because everyone had to keep, you know, like I said, you know, everyone had to look at everyone and cue each other in, to, you know, it's really, it's an intense thing playing that music, you know? Well, at one point, uh, James and Lou were kind of opposite each other, and James actually said, "Dude, can you move that away? That's taking my head off." <laughs> He's standing in front of a stack of four by twelve. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, I think two or three four by twelves there, maybe four, whatever. I lost track of it all, but yes, yeah, so I just moved it slightly, but it all worked out. It's all great. Um, uh, it didn't. I don't recall it taking a lot of preparation. I mean. Yeah. When guys have been playing on the road for a long time and they've literally just recorded an album, it's fresh in everyone's mind, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it didn't seem to right. be that long. Everything seemed to be... I know, it, actually, looking back, that it took a lot longer. The, the process of the record, you know, getting together at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the recording, all that stuff, it's actually stretched out far longer than I remember because um, in the Lou camp, we'd be doing so much work in between. You know, we were doing Lulu before we went and did the Lulu album with Metallica. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of work up to that. We were also doing gigs with the band, you know. There's yeah. a lot of, you know, so it seemed to me like everything was just one big lot of amazing work, you know. Yeah. And this is the other thing. Um, now, I know loads of Metallica fans. Actually, it's very refreshing to see, and I'm seeing online gradually, people who absolutely hated the album are now going, you know, I gave this another go, and I actually quite like some of the tracks, or I'm, pl I'm pleasantly surprised. I remember this being awful, but it's not as bad as I remember. So we're making headway. Now, I stood next to David Bowie when he told Laurie Anderson, after Lou's death, that this album is Lou's finest work, you know, and it's going to be like all his other albums. It's going to take 30 years for people to catch on and realise what it actually is. It's an artist that's absolutely unedited. He's putting everything into this album. Now, I told you about the story of the um, 
the the loose story of the Lulu, the, the girl and the whole thing. And this, you know, there was right. an opera and a, a film, I think, about it before they even did, you know, before Lou even did any of this stuff. But there's a big part of this that people don't understand. And that is Lou's own struggles. Lou was an ill man. He was doing a lot of chemotherapy and stuff. And he was in a lot of pain, you know. And just like Johnny Cash, like all these great artists, they want to just keep producing work. Sure, Johnny yeah. Cash basically was on a point where the last bit of breath coming out of his voice, he wanted to go into a microphone and record. And Lou, I think, was the same way. You can see, like the last interviews, Lou was absolute he had jaundice he was orange his eyes were orange he was like so ill yeah yet he still his sense of duty to go out and actually like give interviews and be you know this artist all of that is in that record all of that anger and pain although he's writing from the perspective of, like this girl and different things um you know he's got a lot of pain going on there that he's dealing with so that is a big part of that album you know Lou's own struggles and, and different things going on. Mate, I've got, I got to tell you about going to Kirk's house because yeah. it's really great. So, Hal Wilner and Kirk both share a thing about horror movies. They love horror movies. I don't know right. if you know this, but Kirk collects all oh, yeah. his memorabilia and stuff. Anyway, yeah. so we get invited over to his house. We think it's his house. It is his house. He owns it. But it's just there full of, like, hammer horror shit. Like, really amazing yeah. shit. So we walk in, and the first thing he does, he says, hey, Stu, maybe you want this. It's, I think it's a 1960 or 59 Les Paul. <laughs> he gave me that. He goes, oh, you might want to just, like, screw around with that. I'm like, cheers, mate. Thank you. <laughs> so that's that, you know, so we've already started out in a good place. Right. Um, and we walk around and look at all this, you know, hammer horror stuff and everything. Anyway... The next day I go into work and I talk to Zach about it and I say, oh, Zach, I can't believe it. You know, we asked, you know, we went to Kirk's place and we said, so this is your house? He goes, no, no, I live next door. This is, I bought this just for the hammer horror stuff. So Zach goes, he doesn't live next door. He usually lives in Hawaii. He just lives next door when he comes in to record. <laughs> so anyway, and it, this house just overlooked a bay with the ocean coming in. And I should also tell you this. Both Robert and Kirk, that during the whole recording of the Lulu album, had their laptops on, and they were they were watching surf championships oh, on wow, their laptops yeah. while they were recording that because they were really, really, they're really into surfing. Yeah, I I didn't know, but I got chatting to them about it. Anyway, that was another thing. Lou said an observation. We were on one of our going out to the movies things. Lou said to me, "You know, Kirk and Robert are really nice guys, aren't they?" I said, "Well, yeah, they're surfers." What do you mean? <laughs> I said, "Well." Anytime I've met someone, be it a diver or a surfer, anyone that goes in the ocean, they're usually pretty humble because they're in, in the ocean is a very, you know, it's a big force. And if you deal with that, if you understand how insignificant you are in the ocean, it's kind of humbling in life. And I said, maybe that's why they're that way, you know. I don't know. Anyway, that's my explanation for it. But yeah, they were watching the whole time they were recording. They were watching surf. <laughs> These guys surfing, surf championships. So. Another thing that happened was, was just a side issue, nothing to do with the album. But Lou obviously is really, well, was into Tai Chi, really, really into it, and he liked to collect Chinese weaponry. So anywhere we went, usually someone would be like hooking him up with Chinese weaponry. So he'd bought a load of Chinese weaponry. Well, whenever he got any swords or anything, or 
condos or whatever, he would give them to me and I'd grind the, the sharp, you know, the points off so that he couldn't kill anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd got a lot of Chinese weaponry and he's like, hey, can you fix this? So, well, at HQ, uh, Metallica's HQ, the, the techs have got a lovely room with tools and stuff. So, and they allowed me in now. I could do it. Mm-hmm. I could use their stuff. So I went back there with the, the Chinese weaponry and started grinding and filing the edges and the Metallica guy's looking at me like, what the fuck? And I'm like, oh, you guys only look after the axes, I guess. You don't get to do the other weaponry. Yeah. <laughs> so, mate, I had a, such a good time with, with Metallica and recording yeah. that album. And it was it was great. When we Even before we started recording, they played that, that um, thing on YouTube, you know, Hitler... Hitler's reaction to Lou Reed joining Metallica. <laughs> That's before we'd even played a note. And all of us, like Lou was laughing, the bat, everyone was just laughing our asses off. It's like, and, and Lars said, Look, Lou, don't worry about it. But our fans have hated everything we've done since I think the, the Dark Album, or, the Black Album, or yeah. uh, Masters of Puppets, you know? Yeah. Um, I forget exactly what album it was, but he made a reference. He goes, Our fans hate everything we do. Don't worry about it. They're going to hate it regardless. <laughs> Even if you weren't on it, they'd hate it. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, there is a kind of uh, uh, the joke among Metallica fans is that, you know, every album has its. Every, you know, everybody hates on the album, but it goes number one. They sell out stadiums, and I'm like, somebody's people are still buying it. So, how much do you hate it? <laughs> you know, I got a theory about this, and it's you know, I think nowadays we're so polarized, we've been so conditioned to you know, with sensationalism and deciding this and deciding that. I think people are addicted to being angry or being pissed yeah. off. I think that it's a cortisol. Or, or uh, you know, part cortisol, part adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Um, these things, basically, the way the body works. If you get shocked, if someone, you know, if an animal jumps out, if you and me are walking in a forest, an animal jumps out, we've got to either kill it or outrun it. So we yeah. get this rush. But if you drip feed that drug through like little sensation, oh, big where Do you know what's in your deli? Do you know what you know? Mm-hmm. Everything geared up in America since I've been here, and it's got worse. I've been here twenty five years. It's sensationalism, and it's not, and it's hype, and there's n- often no actual real content. You know, yeah. coming up soon, blah blah blah, and and I think it's probably the same. This is why you're saying they buy the album, but they just want to bitch about it because I think it's a fix. I think yeah. people like to to moan. I think complaining or being pissed off has become an addictive thing in today's world. You know, because mm-hmm. we're so polarized, we're so, you know. You, if you like in this camp, you can't like that camp. You, you know, if you like Metallica, you can't like sure. insert band name yeah. here or whatever. You know. Yeah. Um, I'm not a Metallica fan per se. I am a Metallica fan of the guys in Metallica because they're great. Oh, I've got to tell you the story. We Metallica and Lou Reed went to watch U2 in the stadium in oh, San wow. Francisco. This is so Spinal Tap. It's brilliant, <laughs> and this is why it needs to be said. We all set off in different vehicles. Lars is in a Mercedes. He's got some people in there. I'm in a minivan um, with James and James's wife. I can't remember her name now. Sorry, but uh, lovely. I'm there. So I'm in this van with Chip driving. Um, Lou and Hal are in another car. And I think there's another car as well. So um, anyway, we're heading to the stadium. Mm -hmm. But obviously the freeway is absolutely chock-a-block. It's crazy. So... 
Chip and the guys are calling back to HQ because the, lo- the, the interns are local guys and they know all the back roads. So we're getting information about getting there the back way. So <laughs> we're all like trying to like do this back way and we're all communicating with each other. Like Lars will fly past and we've got, you know, listen to your phone or text or whatever. You know, it's just absolutely insane. We arrive at the stadium and it's like literally you get out of the van with James Hetfield and you say, oh, you know, we're with the band. <laughs> you ushers through the back, you know, and we all, we all got backstage and Bono and, and Edge were giving interviews, but we met the other two and we're, you know, the guys all chatting. I mean, they're mm. loose friends with all of them. And, you know, I guess everyone knows everyone. And the various people there, Jerry Harrison was there from Talking Heads. So, it's, you know, so it's, you know, we're all backstage, whatever. Then we get led down to the special little, you know, bit for the, you know, for the VIPs, I right, guess. Yeah. Not that I felt like a VIP. I mean, we just got led down. And obviously, Bono, you know, starts, hey, you know, we've got a guest in your, you know, we've got some people here. We've been very influenced by this guy, ladies and gentlemen, Lou Reed. The whole place went mental. And they're all going, Lou, Lou, Lou. And I stood next to him and I said to him, how does that feel? He goes, pretty fucking good. <laughs> 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 so anyway so we're, I'm there with Metallica and we're watching you two and stuff and Lou and everything and it's just I mean it was one of those surreal the whole thing was so Spinal Tap getting there and so surreal being there yeah. and just magical really magical you know awesome. um, but yeah what a, what a thing and uh, that's another I think Edge had been out the night before with Green Day some of the guys drinking with Green Day and some of Metallica I don't know but there was talk about, hey, what about, a, you know, something between Green Day, Metallica and you too, and maybe Lou Reed. It's like, <laughs> but obviously that, that hasn't materialised. I think yeah. that's just a drink talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, awesome. um, any other specific questions? Because I'm, you know, I'll chew your ear off of this, all this stuff, you know? Well, this has all been fantastic. Yeah, a lot of my questions you've actually have answered. You know, I had a big question sort of about what your uh, – uh, perspective was on the album because it was such a controversial release and in and, and as somebody who was not really in the you know consider myself in the Lou Reed camp of fans for you know I kind of like I said at the start I met you through those Facebook groups that I sort of invaded for the sake of my podcast but I met a lot of great people through there some aggressive, yeah. some aggressive people, but mostly great people. Um, but it was funny to see sort of the Lou Reed fan reaction to that album because you it made me realize that, you know, while it was maybe a bit avant-garde, uh, for lack of a better term, for some Metallica fans, it was maybe too heavy for or uh, for some Lou Reed fans, and I and people were saying. Oh, the, it would have been great if he was with any other band but Metallica. Um, so it was just funny to see sort of the the positive and the negative on both sides. And it's a very divisive uh, record. And uh, But I think I, what you said, uh, I have seen it to be true, where I feel like it is aging, to say the least, I think it's aging very well so far. And we're approaching 10 years now already. Right. Well, first of all, as I said, you know, the whole idea about, well, Metallica, their fans hate their albums anyway. So that's um, the Lou Reed thing. I mean, Lou told this story many times, you know, that he'd he'd nearly stalled his career many times. Metal Machine Music that he recorded in 1975. I mean, seriously, that caused a, you want to cause a stir? That caused a stir. He nearly, you know, lost 
I mean, he nearly lost his career on that one. Berlin was not received. You know, he did mm-hmm. transform with David Bowie, you know, a great album. And then he follows up with Berlin, which is a masterpiece. Yeah. But only now people are like, oh, yeah, Berlin, you know. And this is a great thing. I got the best Lou Reed ever because he'd had confirmation. We'd actually gone out and toured Berlin, I think, in 2006, 2007. And it was, you know, people got it they, and they loved it. And that was great. The Metal Machine music album had confirmation from Zeitkreiser, I think it is. It's a German band. They they did the whole thing, you know, on classical instruments. Yeah. So there was confirmation that he was right on both those counts. Um, his band, like you know, it was just great. We were doing more and more work. That the you know, we we started working with Metallica. He'd also been working with John Zorn. He didn't. It started doing a lot of improv gigs, you know, mm. spontaneous improv. Yeah. You know, with the met- and we'd actually toured Metal Machine Trio with the, you know, with all the effects and stuff. So, as far as you know, being around Lou, Lou was now getting confirmation on all levels, avant-garde singer-songwriter, all of his stuff, like that. He'd always been right that his stuff was good, and because mm-hmm. he'd always done it for himself, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um. So, how do I feel about the, the the reaction? Well, I knew people would not get a lot of it. I always loved Junior Dad. I loved it when they he that song was done in various incarnations on the Yellow Pony tour with Laurie Anderson, and it's just something. There's something about that, that I just really gravitated toward. And it's like the reason everyone loves that is because that's a heartfelt thing. This is psych, psychic savagery. This is Lou realizing. This relationship, he's become his father and he and he's never going to be close to his father. Like it, it, it's never going to bridge the gap. I mean, three people cried during that. James and Kirk and Lou cried. On the morning of doing that, when they, you know, we'd started doing that, that song and they went in the control room. They were there for like 20 minutes, half an hour. And Kirk Harmon went in there. And not Kirk Harmon, Zach Harmon, the backline guy, went in yeah. and came back out and said, I don't know what's going on in there, but Lou, Kirk, and James were all crying. So we waited around for about another 20 minutes, half an hour. Zach went back in. He came out and said, we're done for the day. They're spent. They're emotionally done. They can't do any more today. So, you know, I mean, personally, I think they've gone through some some stuff with their fathers. I think, you know, recently Kirk's dad had died and stuff and whatever. And, you know, but that's a very, you know, that's a very deep feeling on Junior Dad, and people, that's why so many people like, and it's a drone, Lou always did drones throughout his career, like everyone says, oh, you know, he did Metal Machine uh, music just to get out of contract, rubbish, the reason Velvet Underground were formed is because John Cale and Lou Reed had a love of drones, I think John Cale actually introduced Lou to drones, the ostrich tuning that we use, that I use with the drones nowadays, and that was used with Velvet Underground on some of the early songs, was basically Jerry Vance came up with that, and he was uh, he's one of the songwriters on the Ostrich song with Lou Reed, and this was in 1964, I believe, before Velvet Underground were put together. And I think that when they first got together, they tuned to the sound of the buzz of the refrigerator or the light bulbs, you know, and mm-hmm. they did the drone tuning. So this whole idea about oh blah blah blah. Lou did drones right until Junior Dad. Junior Dad is a drone track. Yes, Metallica play over it, and they put a drum beat there, but underneath all of that, it started out as a drone track with Saf Calhoun and Rob Wasserman, rest in peace, did a bass thing that became the foundation for that. After Lou had been doing it with his continuum keyboard with Laurie, 
it was obviously something he was trying to work out and he yeah. finally worked it out and then it became this thing with Metallica and it's what you hear now and it's absolutely beautiful. You know, um, I love the way James sings, Why Do You Cheat On Me? I think that's a great... I, I, you know, I was there when a lot of it went down so I'm biased. I mean, I... I, you know, I'd, I'd seen the whole pro. I've been a part of the whole process, so you know, I guess I was closer to the songs. Now, do I listen to Lulu that often? No, I don't. But every now and again, I do, and I'm taken back. You know, it. As Laurie Anderson says, it's a tough album to listen to. It's hard work yeah. for some people, but it gets easier the more you listen to it. It's not that hard for me, but mm-hmm. you've definitely, I've get, definitely got to pick my moment when I'm going to listen to Lulu. I've got to be in a right. Interestingly enough. One time, somehow, iTunes opened up on, on my computer. I don't know. I was doing something online. I, I was going to hit a video, a Rick Beato music video. It was, and all of a sudden, I hear Brandenburg Gate start up in the background. I'm like, what's? And I listened to, the, and it just came on. I didn't yeah. even watch the video. I, I didn't click on the video. I just listened to the whole album. I just sat there and listened. And I was like, wow. Yeah. That is a piece of art. That is intense. You know. Well, I so, I, I said on the episode i did previously where we kind of went through the whole album and stuff i you know i i said that it's it, it's an album uh to, that you have to put work into and it's an album that i can appreciate more the more work i put into listening to it as a fan but i get not everybody wanting to put the work in and understanding yeah. you know the yep. story of Lulu to understand the what went into the process, but that was part of the reason too why I was so fascinated to speak to you about it because I feel like every time I explore that album on some level, I get something else out of it, and it's not my favorite record. It's not it's not in heavy rotation for me like um, the rest of Metallica's catalog, but each year it ages. I get new appreciation for it. And I was kind of taken aback when I dove into it a, a, a month or two ago for the episode. I, I was kind of taken aback by how much I did enjoy some of it, to be honest with you. And, uh, uh, but like I said, I was somebody who, uh, you know, bought the album the day it came out and it's sort of, I've had now a decade to kind of go in and out of it. And it's still not an album that, you know, I, I'm going to listen, revisit perhaps more than once or twice a year, let's say, just to throw out some random number. But I don't think it needs to be an album that necessarily needs to be listened to more because sometimes you just listen to uh, a piece of work and you can experience it and you can let it go. You know, I was just talking to. Uh, somebody else about something unrelated the previous episode he made a great point like you know if you have a great meal or watch a great film and you experience this great piece of art no matter what it is it it, it's okay if you don't want to immediately go back to the beginning and let's do again because not all art is meant to um, experience in that way and i was thinking about his words and i was like and that can be very true especially for an album like this where you sort of experience it and you're okay putting it away for a bit before coming back to it. It's like, it's like having a meal that's not your favorite meal, but every now and again, you just fancy this thing very, very occasionally. Something just, Oh yeah. But it's not something you want every day or that often, you know, you've got a special thing. Um, 
that's how I feel about the, the album. Yeah. It's every now and again, I'll listen to it and it'll do the job. I'll just be and I'll be into it. But also, I'll, you know, I've got memories and stuff that it takes me back. So I've got a bit of a different listening experience. Sure, but yeah. just listening to it as a piece of music, I still, you know, it's good. I think it's great, to be honest. I think they did, you know, considering where both parties came from and how they came together, I think it is a work of art that they actually were able to do that, to pull that off and come together and make that album, you know, with the egos involved and uh, and the different, you know, the different backgrounds and stuff. Yeah. I think it's remarkable. Hal Wilner did a remarkable job of, like, n- navigating Lars, James and Lou through some areas that they had no idea where they could have very easily got into arguments and stuff. And I know that because I used to... Me and Hal would walk up to the, our hotel rooms together up the hill, and he would tell me how he felt. You know, how do you think this went today? How do you think that went? And listen to my opinion, and then say, "Oh, you know, tomorrow could be tricky." I see that Lars is getting a bit, you know, twitchy about a certain thing, and Lou's adamant he wants to do it, and we've got to get him through this whole thing. And so Hal mm-hmm. really needs a lot of credit with this, you know, because it's more the psychological side of it. Yeah. Greg, who produced it, so everyone did a great job. Everyone on there that worked on it did a great job. All the, the techs and studio engineers, everyone was really cool. But Hal did a really great job because he was so subtle that people didn't actually see what he was doing. I had a question about uh, the Lulu listing party because I think we were both there. Um, I, I forget the name of the art gallery now but it was in Cash's gallery on 23rd street 513 23rd street yeah is what it was. do you know why i know that because i did my first ever drones performance there when oh, lou died i did four guitar amps and feedback for three hours amazing. and the police came which was brilliant because if <laughs> ever you've seen the velvet underground picture with lou and the and the cop the american cop you know he's got yeah. you know the cops came and I thought they were going to shut us down, but Lou's gardener, Bob Greenley, <laughs> took the cops outside, explained what was going on, and that we were only going to do it for another 15 minutes, or 20 minutes. At that time, it was about 20 minutes, I think. So they're like, well, can you just bring it down a bit? So I brought it down till the cops went around the corner, and then for the last 15 minutes, I took everything right up. And, <laughs> and I was like, Lou loves this, man. He's loving every minute of this. So, yeah, I did three hours of guitar feedback, which Laurie Anderson came down and said it was absolutely beautiful. She had me do that again at the kitchen, and I've now yeah. performed all over the world. I performed at Dark Mofo Festival. Amazing, I've done yeah. over 220 hours of guitar feedback, and wow. interestingly enough, I don't want to jinx myself, but we're talking, we're negotiating. I'm going to be hopefully doing a performance with Laurie later this month. I'm going to use 12 guitars, dude, in a circle, tuned to the circle of fifths. Oh, wow. In, a, in the woods with Laurie Anderson <laughs> and Shane, a Native American. I think he's Native American. He does all the, the Native chants and stuff. Yeah. Mate, it's going to be pretty awesome. <laughs> so you heard awesome. it here first. You've got an exclusive. <laughs> I've not told anyone that yet. Fantastic. And I don't usually tell people what may or may not happen because I always fear that I'm going to jinx myself. But I think we're going to do it. Awesome. I'm going to have a circle of 12 amplifiers. I generally, It's going to be loose uh, amps, and I'm mm-hmm. going to rent a load of Fender Twin Reverbs. So it's going to look pretty remarkable. Amazing. And it's going to sound unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah, I saw that was... Um... Uh, I, I, when I saw that you had done those drones performances, I thought that was just such a 
uh, a fitting tribute to Lou, especially with the blessing of Laurie and uh, you collaborating with her on it. Um, so I was actually, I was uh, after we talked about the listening party, so you, you went and answered my question. I was going to follow up and ask you about if there's anything else to expect from drums, but we got the exclusive already, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that I've discovered yeah. with doing it is that um, I can fish for frequencies by moving the guitar by its headstock. And when I was in Tasmania doing this at the Dark Mofo Festival, the frequency came up the guitar so intense that I let go for a second. Just like when you're in the ocean and you step on a fish and you, oh my God, what's that? I did the same thing with the guitar, I let it go. And it just stood yeah. there balanced. And I stood over it for 20 minutes waiting to catch it if it fell. And I was like, you know what? Relax, it's not going to fall. It's standing yeah. there upright, balanced, feeding back. So I thought, I wonder if I can do two. So I got another one after nearly... 25 minutes or so i found a frequency and that one stood up anyway in tasmania i was only able to get five to stand but in barjac in the south of france uh, anselm kiefer's art studio i got all seven guitars to stand up balance and i was tuned oh, wow. to a equals 432 there but i since did that in saint john's of divine the largest cathedral in the world in new york up in harlem i got all seven to stand on three different occasions in a five-hour performance with Laurie Anson, John Zorn, Saf Calhoun, Shazad Ismailay, and Stan Harrison. Yeah. So there's a seven-second delay in, in St. John's the Divine. I actually played in San Francisco in Grace Cathedral as well. Oh, Did a session well, there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, people should be in the drones. Um, it's, it's, it changes you. You know, you're changed when these frequencies run through you. That's what I do. I am actually a drone wizard. <laughs> I have over 200 hours of public performance feeding back, and that's not with all the stuff I did with Lou, with Metal yeah. Machine Trio, or all the... My gig, he asked me... He played me Metal Machine, the, the Zeitgeiger the video of Metal Machine music, and said, I need you to figure out how to make guitars feed back and control them. Oh, that's terrible, Lou. What a terrible sign <laughs> to give a guitar tech. Learn how to make guitars feedback. I don't know about you, but I love making guitars feedback, oh, yeah. you know? Anyway, so, yeah, that's the start of it. So I've done that's hours fantastic. and hours and hours of this stuff, you know? It's just um, one of those things that keeps on going, huh? I mean, did you expect it? to? Were you planning on it for it to, you know... No, no, but what I would say is it's one of the most authentic Lou Reed's voice. I mean... Obviously, people can cover his songs, but I don't think, unless you're a nonny or someone who's going to do Lou Reed's song in a such a good way, unique, new way, no one's going to top doing Lou Reed's songs after Lou Reed's done them. I mean, he's so, he's Lou Reed, for Christ's sake. Yeah. No one can do that. Yeah. So, but the drone idea, the feedback idea that came all the way back from before Velvet Underground, that's a big part of Lou. Uh, I mean, he did Hudson uh, Water Wind Meditation so he could do Tai Chi. This is the interesting thing people don't get with uh, some of the Lou Reed albums. Like, when he lost a couple of close friends, he didn't have music for mourning to, so he wrote Magic and Loss. Mm. You know, when he wanted to perform Tai Chi, he didn't have the right music to perform Tai Chi. So he Hudson Water and Wind Meditation music. He creates yeah. stuff, you know. I think the whole thing... I don't think he'd actually fought out like the Lulu project with Metallica. He just knew that when he played with Metallica behind him, he liked the fear, like because of drones, like his frequencies and mm -hmm. power hitting his body. Once again, I could relate it to drones. I think that when when you're in a room with Metallica, dude, it's you know they they 
kick ass, you know. Yeah. <laughs> They're not screwing around, do you know? Right, yeah. It was love. It's actually great because as well, Lou always loved showing people his pedals and his guitars. And when after we got the initial thing going, he said to Kirk, "Yeah, have a go on my guitar and." try my fast my death pedal and kirk loved it and it's interesting afterwards because i spoke to kirk about it he goes oh that's that, he said that's really weird because that's a carl thompson guitar he said and les claypool is a mate of mine he's got the less you know the bass carl yeah. thompson built all the basses for les claypool he said and we always call that thing a plank you know he said i always like you know take a piss out of Les <laughs> for that guitar he said i was amazed how great it is how it beautiful it plays and how light it is and everything it, so it's nice you know it's um, awesome I like all the little, see, this is the great things about being a guitar tech. It's all the, you guys, the audience, you think you see the performance. The best performances are usually the sound checks or what happens when no, when there's no pressure to perform. Yeah. That's when there's real magic in the air. I mean, I'm not saying the performances aren't magic. They are. But seriously, you know, I've been in the presence of like some amazing shit, you know. Yeah. And part of that was recording the Lulu album. There were some absolute magical moments in there where you could feel it in the air, you know? So, yeah, a great time. I love all the guys in Metallica. They were really kind to me. I, You know, they treated me very well. We laughed a lot as well. There was a lot of laugh. It was tough, you know, there's some mm. tough stuff in there, but generally it was a good time. It, San Francisco was the one place where, other than New York where I thought, you know what, I quite like it here, you know, it's pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good vibe out there, you know. Well, this was fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to me and tell the story. Um, where can everybody? Is there a spot everybody can find you online? They want to keep tabs with drones or any other projects coming down the pipeline, especially now that well, things are starting to finally open up and musicians can get back to work. Well. As you saw earlier on, I'm I'm a guitar tech. I'm from a, a I'm a, from a, the last millennium. I'm old school. I like <laughs> guitars. I like cables. I'm rubbish with phones and and stuff. But I got a Facebook page and I've got videos up called One Strones. One word. One Strones. Lowercase. Mm at gmail.com and I've got some videos on there some of it's drones some of it's just me noodling stupid ideas some of it's I've got some teaching videos funny me teaching people I've got some interesting ideas about music theory that have come up because of what I do with drones and and what I've learned with with people I've worked with I've got a very different take on a lot of things and I think I've seen music theory and I've seen some patterns in music that I don't think have been explored yet and um so I've started to try and put that in videos, but you know, that people find it, it will get out one way or another. They'll find me if they want to find me. You know. <laughs> well, this was fantastic. Really, thank you so much, Stuart, for taking the time and walking us through all things. I just, I just, I just want people not to like keep calling James a coffee table because it's like unfair. He's a, it's great what he did. Yeah. What that performance? He's, he's he is the voice of God and he's pissed off. Yeah, he's pissed off because you keep calling him a fucking coffee table. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the soundbite right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, my mum hate it. I'm swearing on the on the. On the phone. Anyway, thank you, Stuart.
A huge thank to Stuart Horwood for coming on Metallic Ass. I really did not want to interrupt because I thought it was a great story after great story after great story. I thought all of this was gold. I was just nerding out listening to the stories about Lou Reed and Metallica. I think this was a fantastic insight into such a unique partnership. Love it or hate it, uh, there's no denying the fact that Lulu is such a unique work in both of their catalogs. And I just really appreciate the time and energy that Stuart brought in coming on Metallicast. Please, if you're interested in getting in contact with him or finding out more about drones, check out the links in the episode description. If you're new to Metallicast, I'd greatly appreciate it if you subscribe, download, or leave a positive five-star review in Apple Podcasts. All that goes a long way in helping this podcast continue to grow on my quest for world domination. If you can also be so kind, please give Metallicast a follow on social media at Metallicast Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And a huge shout out to Bison, my favorite one-man band led by Hector Castro, who provides all the music that you heard in this episode. Check out the links in the episode description and give Bison your support as well. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, middle up your ass. Yeah! Fans not experts.